As I mentioned before, uh, we will be taking uh, this full message in two parts. Uh, and I understand that some may have already had plans and need to go elsewhere. And I know some people have invited each other to lunch. I just found out about and I've just destroyed all of those plans. You do what you need to do. That's totally fine. But I know that before the Lord, I cannot put all of this together into one big message because I think it'll lose some of what the Lord would have for us because it'll be so much and it'll just uh, take away from it. So the plan is we'll go until uh, such a time as I feel that the Lord would have me stop and then we'll take some lunch together and then for those who can come back, uh, we'll get to part two and we will uh, finish this particular study for us this morning. Thank you for being flexible about this and for being fluid uh, with things that change. I think it's a little bit like the New Testament church. You know, I think they came together and they just did things spontaneously and somewhat impulsively because that's what they did. And so uh, I hope that we can be the same way in that regard. Turn with me, please, this morning to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, towards the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi, and that's the end of the Old Testament. Not a book you turn to very often. Some of you may never have even heard of it before. The book of Haggai. I know it sounds like Haggis, but it's got nothing to do with it. Okay? Haggai, chapter 1. And let me read for us the first six verses from this portion of the Bible. Haggai, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 5 is a command to the children of Israel at the time to consider their ways. To think about their ways. And we're continuing, if you were not here uh, on our first Sunday in the new year... We're continuing in our studies on a subject that I have entitled a series, Considering Our Ways and Developing Habits of Holiness. I don't usually use long titles, but this is the one that the Lord selected for us. Considering Our Ways and Developing Habits of Holiness. And this study, as I said to you, if you were here on that uh, first Sunday of the new year, this study is largely based upon the questions and convictions that the Holy Spirit has put upon my own heart. Okay, these have not been organized for you directly. 
They have been what the Lord has been working through in my own heart. And from what I have heard from people, the series has already been a help and a challenge. And I hope it will continue to be so. And one of the difficulties is that what this series is doing is it's asking some hard questions of us. Some prying and probing questions. And in doing so, it unveils the issues of our own hearts. And so what I have said, as I said in our first message, this series takes on five different categories of our lives. Last time we were together, we looked at our personal and private life. Today, we are looking at our family and home life. Next time will be our vocational life and then our social life and then our church life. In these five categories, we are asking some extremely probing and private questions to determine where our heart is truly at. And if you weren't here last time, you haven't had a chance to listen to the message. Here's the questions that I asked in our last message about our personal and private life. Number one, I asked, what do you want more than anything in this life? Number two, what do you delight to do when you are alone? Number three, what is the state of your prayer life? Number four, what is the state of your thought life? Number five, how much time have you invested in reading, studying, meditating and memorizing the scriptures? And then lastly, what are your habits and what impact do they have on your spiritual life? And in that, we asked a number of questions. We considered the area of entertainment. We considered the area of eating and drinking. We considered the area of clothing, fashion and appearance. We considered the area of sleeping and rest habits. And then lastly, we considered the area of finance. And that was a big message. That was a huge message with regards to our personal heart and life. Now, I have no doubt, as I have prepared this message for us this morning, that there are many churches, if I may say that, out there who would sack me for preaching a series such as this. They might say, he is so unloving. Or what right does he have to pry into my personal life and tell me how to live? Others might say, Jesus just wants us to be happy, healthy and comfortable. There's no need for this kind of Bible bashing. Some might even foolishly say, holiness was for the Puritans. We've evolved in our Christian life. I know some who would label and brand me today as a legalist. And one who's seeking to put us back under a yoke of slavery. Because of these truths in the word. But I want to help us to understand how I came to some of these matters that will be the subject of this message. But first of all, I want to say something and I don't want it to be seen as pride on my part. Because I truly believe this is not that. At MCCBC, you as our local church and the congregants here have a unique privilege. Because you sit under a pastor who is not living in the ivory towers. By this I mean, I don't have the privilege to spend all day long in the word of God. I can't pray all day. I can't visit. I can't evangelize all day long. Like so many others who have full time. Uh, they're able to be in the full time ministry. 
And you say, why is this a privilege? Why is it a privilege that you are a bivocational pastor and not fully supported? Because I live a life just like you. I have a wife to take care of. I have a job that I need to perform every day to survive financially. I have to make time for God just like you and pursue holiness. I have to balance the many areas of my life. I struggle with my sin on a minute by minute basis. I do not have all my spiritual ducks lined up. I am just as prone to wander from the Lord as you are. And I am a long way from the sinless perfection for which I strive. In other words, why am I saying all of this? I'm saying this because this series has been applicable to me even more than it is to you. Because these are questions that have been asked of my own life and heart. And I want this to be so clear as I preach this morning. I am not descending from the heights of spirituality to you today. Preaching an impossible message for you to perform and obey. And then mounting on my high horse and riding off in the distance. Okay? I want us to understand that. Because when we get to some of these things, these are hard things. And I can tell you 100% sure that these hard things are hard for me. I don't live in some ivory tower thinking that it's all worked out. I am living in the mud with you. I'm stained by the same sins you are. I'm often lethargic, rebellious and defeated. Yet I am passionately pursuing God, his holiness, his righteousness and his power and glory. And so I believe that I am right to say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not under obligation and a mandate from heaven to do. So with that introduction... That should have scared you sufficiently. Certainly scares me. I want to preach this second installment. Considering our ways and developing habits of holiness and particular, particularly in the area of family and home life. Father, as I bow before you now and as I seek to communicate these truths to the people that you have brought here, by divine appointment, I pray that you would use them mightily in lives Thank you for all that you have shown me and taught me in private. Thank you for unveiling and illuminating me to my constant struggle and wrestle with my flesh. Thank you that I don't have everything worked out because if I did, I wouldn't be dependent upon you. And now, Lord, I'm dependent upon you to help and to strengthen and to enable and equip me for a task such as this. Help me to know when to stop. Help me to know when is the appropriate time to, uh, to give more information on a particular subject. Help these, my listeners, to be attentive, to concentrate on these truths, to be sensitive to the Spirit of God, to lay aside all that has happened this week gone by and all that's before us, the anxieties of yesterday, the anxieties and worries of tomorrow, that we might focus on this before us today. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. We're considering our family and home life. Let me just explain to you what I mean by this and what I meant in private. By family and home life, 
I am referring to both the place where you reside, the bricks and mortar, as well as the people with whom you interact in that place. That's what I'm talking about when I say home and family life. And much can be gleaned from looking at this area of life. This is the place we call home. This is the place where the masks are removed. The old adage says, if you want to know someone, ask their family about them. What we see is not what's always there. But go to their family and say, well, what do they look like when they take off their shoes at home? What do they look like when the jewelry's gone and when the outward appearances change? What are they really like? That's what we want to know. That's what we want to ask. And as I mentioned, we're going to ask some very probing questions this morning. And to determine whether or not our home, our family, is a place of holiness and a place in alignment with the scriptures. And so to aid us in this endeavor, I've organized my questions into some smaller categories. And as I said before, I'm not sure where we'll end, but we'll end when we end. So subcategory number one, the first one we're looking at. The husband and wife relationship. Now, I always like to look around the room the moment I say that. Because then you see the husband sit up and the wives sit up and they sort of nudge each other. Make sure you listen to this bit. The husband and wife relationship. And so here's my questions. Questions I asked of myself. Questions that I'm asking of you. Number one. Do I love my spouse more than any other human in the world? Do I love my spouse more than any other human in the world? Now, this is not an interactive forum. Thankfully, you don't have to put your hands up. We're not saying yes on this side, no on that side. These are questions of the heart for you to answer. And if you will be honest with yourself, you will find great help in the scriptures. This is the first and most critical question to be asked of all Christian marriages. Do I love my spouse more than any other human in the world? Number two, we're going to go through a lot of questions, so I've got to keep moving. Have the two become one in reality, or does there remain an independence? And if you don't keep up with all these questions, you can get a copy of the notes, no problem. Have the two become one in reality, or does there still remain an independence? Now, some of you at this point may be thinking, well, this doesn't really even apply to me. I'm, I'm not married or I'm separated or I'm divorced or whatever the case might be. Don't worry, you'll get your turn. It's coming. You don't have to worry. Have the two become one. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2.24 that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they too shall become one flesh. One flesh. Mark, the Lord Jesus in Mark 10, 7 to 8 says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one. The Bible makes it clear that two individuals who enter into the covenant of marriage become one entity. They become one entity. For a married couple to live independent lives like ships passing in the night is to deny that truth and operate with an identity 
crisis. Because what has happened in reality, practically, physically, is the two have become one. But in the practicalities of that life, often there is an independence between those two individuals. And so the question is, have the two really become one in reality? Remember, this is in the category of the husband and wife relationship. Number three, does my marriage adequately depict Christ and his church? Does my marriage adequately depict Christ and his church? It was the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit's illumination, who explained that marriage was a mystery in the New Testament. And that marriage was to be a parable of a greater truth. And that greater truth was Jesus Christ in his relationship with the church. Marriages in this room, Christian marriages, you are to look like Jesus Christ and his church. The difference between our marriage relationship and that one is that the husband in that relationship is absolutely perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ. But on earth, we are to look like that. We are to operate the same way. Paul writes, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let every one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5, 32 to 33. A marriage between two believers should illustrate to the church and the world what the gospel is all about. So does my marriage adequately depict Christ and his church? Questions for consideration. We're considering our ways and first of all, we're considering the husband-wife relationship. Question number four. We get to some of the heart of the issues here. Number four, am I enjoying or enduring my marriage? Am I enjoying or enduring my marriage? You see, marriage is not a duty to perform. It is a foretaste of heaven on earth. It's not a duty to perform. Solomon writes much about this subject In one place, he prays for his son. And this is what he says for his son and his daughter-in-law. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Solomon is not being coarse. He's not being crass. He's saying this is a delightful thing. This is a joyous thing. This should be heaven on earth for the Christian marriage. Am I enjoying or am I enduring? Hard question. Number five. Am I experiencing the grace of life as God intended it to be? When you go to the Apostle Peter and you go to chapter 3 and verse 7 of his first epistle, we read this. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. You know what this means? This means that the greatest joy, the greatest blessing outside of salvation alone is when two Christian people come together and are married and they enjoy not just divine grace for eternity, but earthly grace in marriage. 
This is the greatest joy. This is the greatest connection that can be had outside of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, in the Bible, when you boil it down, there are only two special forms of grace. Two. One is grace that leads to eternal life. And the other is grace of life in the physical union of two Christians in marriage. They're the two forms of special grace in the Bible. Marriage is a covenant entered into for this physical life only. And it is a wondrous gift of God. And may I say this, because I'm telling you this is things that I have been working through. Only after nine years of being married have I just started to understand this reality. I have certainly not got it, but I've just started to realize that God's design for this is of incredible joy. And it's hard, isn't it, when my wife's sitting right in front here. But the truth is that, that it takes some time to learn this reality, at least for me, because I'm pretty thick-headed. And I've seen this over the last little while. This is the grace of life. This is what it is. And so for you who are married, you who are Christians, you who enjoy that reality, and even if your husband or your wife is not a Christian, it's still the grace of life. It just has a different component to it. And so are you enjoying that or are you enduring it? Okay, subcategory number two. This is where we take aim at the specifics. That was somewhat comfortable. It was hard, but it was comfortable. Well, we're about to get very uncomfortable, husbands. This is subcategory number two, husbands. So the wives can all just relax for a minute or you can just nudge your husband and say, listen to this bit. Being a husband, having taken some time over the last few weeks and even months to consider my ways and develop habits of holiness, one of the things I had to look at was my own life as a husband. Bringing it into alignment, into the lens of Scripture. Not what the world says, what the Word says. And so here are some very difficult questions. And men, if you are not married, these are questions still for you. These are questions you can begin to ask yourself. Young men who are preparing for marriage, you can start asking yourself these questions now. What preparation that will be. Number one. Have I forsaken all others whether physical or digital to cleave exclusively to my wife have I forsaken all others whether physical or digital to cleave exclusively to my wife we are not only speaking of extra extramarital affairs but also pornography Improper relationships at work or the gym or on the internet. Wandering eyes at the shopping center or being unnecessarily absent from the home. We're talking about all of these things. Men, this morning, I beg you to listen to this. We are living in spiritually and sexually hostile times. We are. And if you don't believe that, you're either lying or you are the most naive person I have ever met. The world of immorality led by the kingdom of darkness has plundered many homes and continues to mount their attacks against all who would seek to live pure and holy lives. If you say, I want to be pure, you are going to be attacked 
in major ways. This culture is spiritually and sexually hostile. There is barely an internet page, a television station, a newspaper edition or a highway billboard that is not designed to arouse both your eyes and your sexual organs. That's the truth. I'm saying the truth. That's what it's designed to do. They tell us in the media, sex sells. And it does. It arouses. It causes things within us. And men, how careful we must be. Unless our defences are constantly fortified and our spiritual man regenerated and strengthened regularly, we will fall into sin. And that is a personal testimony. We will. I do. You do, possibly. How careful we must be. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says this. Let marriage be held in honour among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He will. Have I forsaken all others? Whether physical or digital to cleave exclusively to my wife. Number two. Am I lovingly and sacrificially leading my wife as Christ does the church? The the husband, the Bible says, is called to be the leader of the home. Make no mistake about it and he will give an account for his efforts on judgment day. For some husband... For some husbands in this room, perhaps, or elsewhere that might listen on the Internet one day, the call here is to reject laziness and start leading your wives. For others, the call is to lead with love because otherwise you lead with harsh abrasiveness. It's either laziness or it's Leading in love that needs to happen. They seem to be the two categories I see most often in my own heart and also in the hearts of others. In other words, we're saying some aren't leading and some aren't loving. And both are unacceptable in God's economy. Ephesians 5.23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife. I know the culture hates that. I know some of you might even think about that and go, I can't believe what this, you know, I'm such a, I'm so uh, against all of these things. That's sexist. That's all. That's what the Bible says. You might not like it, but that's what it says. And Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So men, husbands, potential husbands, am I learning what it is to love And sacrificially lead my wife as Christ does the church. The mandate and the standard is high. It's high. It's higher than you'll ever attain. But that's what we're aiming for. Like Christ and his church. Number three. Men, husbands. We get to a practicality here. Am I washing my wife with the word of God? Teaching and helping her to become holy and without blemish. Am I washing my wife with the word of God? Until recently, my own confession again. Until recently, I believed that it was my wife's responsibility to wash herself. 
I knew what the Bible said, but I had believed, you know what, you wash yourself. And I'm not talking about in the shower or the bath. I'm talking spiritually. And on one level, that's true. We are each given the command to read the word, to have communion with God, to, to walk with him. And that is true. However, Paul makes it abundantly clear that every Christian husband has a mandate from heaven to lead, teach, admonish, explain and disciple their wives through the word. That's what the Bible says. Now, this doesn't mean, as some might think, okay, I need to get up at 5 a.m. every single morning and engage myself in a rigorous reading plan with my wife. It doesn't mean that. It can mean that, but it doesn't mean that. What it does require is that a husband engage in spiritual discussions, in readings, in prayer, in direct applications designed to bring growth and holiness to his wife. It's with a plan. It's not just, well, let's pull out the daily bread or let's pull out our daily devotion and we'll read this. And that's all well and good. But it actually is proactivity on the part of the husband to wash and train and disciple the wife so that she might grow to be the Christian that God wants her to be. Probably the most difficult thing about this is not that activity. It's what goes before that. What this means is that the husband himself must be reading, must be learning, must be able to communicate biblical truth, which means he must be in the word. He must be filled with the truth. If he is going to divulge to another and disciple another in the word, he himself must be in the word. So men, we've got to be in the word. Husbands, we've got to be learning the word because it's not just for us, it's for our household. For our wives, and it is to wash them. Ephesians 5.26 says that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And that was just question three. And we've got a bunch more. Number four. Husbands, me, myself, am I nourishing and cherishing my wife? This question is taken from Ephesians 5.25. We won't turn there. But let me explain what this verse means. To nourish is to bring someone to maturity. It's to nurture them. It's to help them bear fruit. Just like you would a young plant. You water it. You make sure it's taken care of so that it would grow up. That's the picture here of nurturing. Cherish is a really interesting Greek word in this particular verse. You know what it literally means? My wife is going to love this. If you've not heard this, you're going to love this. This word cherish literally means to keep someone warm. She's freezing all the time. And my job to cherish in its literal sense is to keep someone warm. It's to bring comfort. It has the idea of meeting the needs and fostering with care. So now she has the ability to say to me, based on the scripture, you must buy me an electric blanket. <laughs> because that's what it literally means. Keep her warm. And the idea, the picture there. Karcher's going, I'm warm enough. Don't keep me any warmer. Right? Some of us have different temperature levels. But the point there is that we are cherishing, we are ministering to the needs of that woman that God has given to us. Now, interestingly, that demands on the part of the husband sacrifice, expense, time, energy. 
even sweat because you're going to be hot in keeping her warm. But practically speaking, what does this mean by way of cherishing and nourishing? Well, from what my little understanding of, of marriage is, this is what I think it means. I think it means talk to your wife. I think it means share your heart with her. Develop in her right thinking patterns. Buy electric blankets. I wrote that here. Buy electric Buy the clothes that are necessary. Okay, ladies, don't take this way out of context. Okay? And the comforts that are required. It means that your priority is your wife's needs, not your own. It's the point of what Paul is saying. Am I nourishing and cherishing my wife? Number five. Am I providing for her financial needs? Now, some are going to say, that's so antiquated. Come on. I mean, ladies can work for themselves, and they can. I'm not disputing that fact. But but the Bible says this. If any man does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is pretty strong language. From Paul to First Timothy in First Timothy five and verse eight. And Paul goes on to say, A man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. That'll really fix the doll, wouldn't it? People who don't work shouldn't eat. Men, our job is to provide the finances in the family. I'm not in, in, at this point disputing the fact that women work or anything like that. That's not the point. The point is that you are supposed to do this to provide for your family. God given responsibility to work. We should be working. It ought not to be that they are out working and we're at home doing nothing. There is, and I'm not just talking about money. We're talking about working and not being lazy. We're talking about actively and proactively doing what God's called us to do and working hard. Am I providing for her financial needs? Number six. Am I gentle with her as though she were a fragile vessel or vase? Some of you are looking at me like, come on. Let me tell you what really, really upsets me. And I mean it makes me mad. You want to make me mad, bring this subject up. Our culture is rearing women today to be self-sufficient, independent, and to come out from under the yoke of homemaking. Because now we have our women going to war. Boy, that makes me mad. We have our women playing football and bodybuilding and enforcing the law as police officers. Now, I get that some of this is going to upset some people, but that is not the biblical mandate. That's not the pattern that's supposed to happen. It's okay to say that the women are the weaker vessel. That's not downgrading them or condescending to them. That's saying God designed it this way. Let's live with it and let's work within what God designed it to be. This has come about, I believe. Not because women of their own volition said, right, that's it, I want to be this strong super person, but because men let it happen. Because men wouldn't lead. Because men wouldn't be the valiant one in their homes. Because men stood back and got lazy. And we know that the natural uh, effects of a woman within her, the Bible says, is that she will want to rule. And if the man doesn't stand up, she will. The Bible says that. Scripture is clear, the wife or the woman is the weaker vessel, 1 Peter 3, 7, and must be honoured and loved as such. This is not condescension. This is, we recognise that God has designed you a special way and we want to honour that. We don't want to change that. You are a precious ornament and it is our responsibility, men, to ensure that she stays that way. 
untainted by the world's culture and what they would have a wife or woman to be. Now, I'm happy to have a queue of people who are offended with me afterwards. Just line up, we'll take a number and that's fine. We'll work through each one, that's fine. Number seven. Here's a question that I have to ask myself. Very hard having Jessica in the room. I should have sent her out the room. Number seven. Do I have realistic expectations of her life, work, emotions and support of me? Do I have realistic expectations of her life, her work, her emotions and her support of me? So let me be clear on this, men, lest you think that I'm going down a different path. Our wives are not our slaves. And all the women say, Amen. They are called to respect and submit based on the scripture. There's no question about that. But we must be ever so careful, men, ever so careful to not misuse, abuse or manipulate this fact. It's very easy and I have seen it and it's a cult mentality where the man will uh, stand there with his chest puffed out and say, now you will obey me because the Bible says this. Yeah, but it also says love and die for your wife. There is a wonderful union and unity in these two truths. Let's not get on either side of that pendulum. Okay, real specific men. If you weren't listening, now listen. Now this is going to be up front and in your face. You know what men, as husbands, and again I'm not trying to be crass or crude. We need to know when our wives are experiencing their period. So what? Because... We need to be extra supportive because we need to be sensitive because we need to bless above and beyond because that's our job. We need to know that when our wives come home with a boot full of shopping, we need to get off the couch and carry it. We need to get off the Xbox, leave the newspaper on the table and get up and help our wives. We are called to that. You don't have to sit there while your wife is carrying in 20 bags of shopping that she just went all the way down to Seymour to Aldi because it's real cheap down there, you know, and bring it all the way up here. And she's carrying all these bags and you're sitting on the chair and thinking, now I wonder, Lord, what is your will in regards to this situation? I'm not sure if you really want me off this chair. Until your spirit leads me, I'll stay right here. Right? You don't have to wonder what God's will is. You are given strength. You're a man. You're a leader. Get off the couch and help them carry in the groceries. I'm being humorous on one level, but on another level, it's very sad, is it not? One of the areas that I personally wrestle with in this category of realistic expectations of life, work, emotions and support is that my wife and I operate differently when it comes to thinking. I don't know if you've noticed that, men, if whether you think that perhaps men and women are a little bit different. There's a few laughing, so you must. There's a little bit of a difference in thinking patterns. So I tend to be, well, I think, fairly logical and right all the time and that sort of thing. Right? I, I tend to be someone who is methodical, not highly emotional, not that sort of thing. I tend to be that way. And it just doesn't make sense how some conversations go. They're all the other way. And, and so I, I think, wow, and it's good that I'm up the front. Jessica, you don't get a turn up here. All right. But you know what? The reality of that is God has put individuals together for a purpose. And that emotionalism and that 
need for security and assurance and so forth, and perhaps sometimes not logic necessarily, is given to us men so that we can lead, so that we can help, so that they are dependent on us and we're dependent upon them. This is a wonderful connection here. And though sometimes I wrestle with this, we need to remember that realistic expectations, we operate differently. And so we can't treat our wife as though they're another man, as though they think like we do. It's not true. They don't. And so the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3, 7, as husbands live with our wives is in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Number eight. Think about how many of these are there? That's why we're having lunch and then coming back. Number eight. Men, husbands, myself, am I seeking to understand her and not discredit her ideas or thoughts? Am I seeking to understand her and not discredit her thoughts or ideas? I, uh, as I was uh, considering these things, I thought, I wonder what quotes there are on the internet about the relationship between men and women. And there's a lot. <laughs> Oscar Wilde had this to say. Women are meant to be loved... Not understood. Now, although that's pithy, and it is, it's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. That's, that's a, a funny little phrase, but that is not according to the scripture. Because we are told men live with understanding. It's not they're that distant alien from another planet that I'm supposed to love but have nothing to do with concept. That's not how it is at all. We are supposed to know her intimately and minister to her accordingly. Let me just give you a couple of, um, maybe just a few things I've gleaned over the last nine years that might be helpful here when seeking to understand her. I can't say this is generalized, but perhaps what I've seen from a distance with other women, I think some of these are true. First of all, men, she doesn't like huntsmen. <laughs> just get rid of them. She doesn't like them. As much as you might think that it should be her job, she doesn't like them. She's afraid of them or whatever. The just get rid of them. She loves chocolate. Buy some. And don't eat it all. <laughs> One thing I've learned, and I've said this in a joking way over the years, I think it should be as part of our marriage covenant, is that your wife loves your McDonald's chips. Let her eat them. Even though you've suggested before, why don't you buy your own? Doesn't matter. As a sacrificial and loving husband, she can have some of my chips. All right? Our wives like sparkly things. They're designed that way. You say, oh, well, the money bank account, that will save some money because you're going to need some. Men, our wives like sparkly things, and that's okay. One other thing, and some of these are humorous, but some are very serious, and one is she wants to hear from you. She wants you to share. I've learned that more lately. Don't be cold and distant. I tend to be one of those brooding type people, you know, in the sense that oh, I don't have a bad attitude, but I keep a lot inside. I think about a lot of things and until I've figured everything out, I don't really want to share anything. But that's not how it works. Share right along the journey, right from all the sin that you bring to the relationship, share the struggles right through to all the resolutions and everything in between. She wants to know that. I find that... Uh, Wives, as best I can see, love it when you share, when you show concern and care by writing a little note. 
I've learned that uh, our wives appreciate spontaneous intimacy. Be impulsive. Don't be so ordered that, you know what, you know exactly when you're going to have a hug, you know exactly when you're going to have a kiss. Okay, at two o'clock, we're going to hold hands for five minutes, then we'll go our separate ways. That kind of thing. Spontaneous in intimacy. She wants to be heard and her opinions to matter to us. She wants to be led valiantly and loved unconditionally. I don't know about everybody's, and I still haven't done this, but I think my wife loves a picnic. Plan one. Pack the sandwiches. Go do it. Spend some time together. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that what I am learning and what I've asked myself is that we men have to take the time to understand our wives. We can't idly watch our lives and marriages go by without investing in it. It doesn't just happen. If you just leave it, nothing will happen. And you'll get old and grey and you'll wonder what happened for those 40 years of my marriage. I don't really feel close. And you know what is very interesting? There are statistics today that tell us that families, they have children, they grow up. And then so often when the families and the children have disappeared, the husbands and the wives break up. You know why? They never knew each other. They had children. They worked together in raising and rearing the children. And then when left alone, they went... I don't really like you. And they disappeared from each other. and it broke. That has happened all over the place. That cannot happen in the church. Because we are supposed to, men, be concerned about knowing and understanding our wives. Number nine. We're almost there. Maybe we'll have three services. Number nine. Am I, men, husbands, husbands-to-be, not yet to do this, but am I initiating regular times of intimacy? It's almost as though there are things we don't talk about in church. You know, interactions, intercourse, sex and so forth. We just don't talk about that stuff in church because it's almost like it's unholy. And I don't want to uh, be, again, crass in this, but I just want to state this because it's really important. Sex is a gift of God. It's given for both pleasure and procreation. And as a leader, men, we are responsible to ensure that this precious gift forms an integral part of our marriages. The only reason why a couple, according to the Bible, should ever cease in that regard is because of a mutually agreed, agreed prayer time for a period of time, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. It's the only place in the whole Bible. So am I initiating regular times of intimacy? Number 10. Do I, and young men who are not married, this is for you as well. Do I pray for my wife? God tells us there is power in prayer. If I want to see changes in my wife's life, it will come about because I am committed to praying for her. And specifically, Lord, this area, this fear, this struggle with an emotion, this whatever it might be, I'm going to bring this before the throne of grace because you alone are the one who can change her as she prays for me and that changes me. Do I pray for my wife? Number 11 and lastly under the category of husbands, and there's probably more, but this is the last one for now. Do I humbly resolve conflicts in my marriage. So unless, you're, uh, unless you are completely naive or have no idea whatsoever, when two people come together, there are going to be conflicts. Right? Two sinful people under the curse, 
there's going to be conflicts. It's just like that old um, humorous adage says, I would be the best husband if it were not for my wife. I would be the best pastor if it were not for my church. All this, we can always blame the other person, but the reality of it is, there are, when there are two people involved, flesh is involved, there will be conflict. And conflict in and of itself is not bad. Men, this isn't nice, but it's true. The onus falls upon us, husbands, to lovingly and humbly lead our wives out of that conflict into resolution and whatever repentance is necessary. Whether it's on your part, on her part, on both parts. That's our job. This does not mean that the man is always right. But what it does mean is that both are always willing to be wrong. That's a great way of looking at conflict. I don't have to be right, but am I willing to be wrong? If you can't say yes to that, then pride and the flesh has crept in and there will be no resolution until such time. The man is not always right. The woman is not always right. Both can be wrong. Quietly and sweetly bring unity and reconciliation to the relationship. Men, husbands, this is what you must do. Easy job. Piece of cake, men. Got that down? Go home and we'll just get it sorted now. And let me just, let me just add this in as we come to a close here. You ask these questions, you make the necessary changes, and I guarantee before you get home today, probably, you will be faced with an opportunity to live one of these out. Because what the Lord loves to do is refine us in this, to give us an opportunity to grow in it. And what the devil loves to do is whisper in our ears, you can't do this, you cannot do this, and that marriage is going to crumble to pieces if you listen to the voice of the enemy, if you don't listen to the voice of truth and obey it, it will crumble. It will break. The foundations will come unstuck. And so men, we're starting with you. After lunch, wives. I wonder how many wives will still be here. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this opportunity to consider our ways. Lord, we've talked about the husband-wife relationship. We've talked about the husband and there's many other areas to cover yet. Dealing with wives, dealing with children and parents and dealing with our home itself. And Lord, I don't know who can stay and I don't know who needs to go. But whatever the case might be, might these truths penetrate into our heart. Lord, for our young men in the room, I pray for them that you would keep them pure. That you would keep them uh, in a place where they are prepared for that person that you would have for them. If in fact you've called them to marriage. Uh, Lord, I pray for our husbands in the room right now. Uh, Lord, those who have come under this hard teaching. I pray that we would truly ask ourselves these questions and seek to live a holy life with habits of holiness. Help us, we pray. Oh, how we need it. And Lord, help us to realize that this is not just temporary, but that we will stand one day before you and give an account for our wives and for our families and for those who have uh, been dwelling and interacting in our household. Lord, give us wisdom Raise up a generation of valiant men who are true to the word of God, loving to their wives, sacrificial, ready to die, but strong leaders in the truth. Thank you for this time. May you be continually honored and praised. In Jesus' name, amen.